Conversations. Hello, welcome to Med Conversations. I'm here with Scott. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) It's always so hard to start these, but anyway, so it's Beck here and Scott, and today we're talking about syphilis. And uh, it's not something that I know a lot about, so Scott's going to be running the show, and I'm looking forward to learning a lot. Cool. All right. I think syphilis is really interesting. So I guess to start with the definition of syphilis, so it's a disease caused by Trepanoma pallidum, subspecies pallidum. There's a lot of other subspecies of Trepanoma pallidum, but most of them cause um, similar diseases, which are more distributed in the tropics, like yours, Pinta, Bejil. So obviously this is really key learning. If you're a, mm-hmm. if you're a fourth year medical student or above, you need to know everything there is to know about Pinta. Yeah, Bejil, also known as Sahel disease. Yeah. But in all seriousness, the important thing to know here is that syphilis is caused by treponema pallidum, which also causes a bunch of other things that aren't very important. And uh, the subspecies pallidum is the syphilis-specific one. Is that right? Yeah. So we won't talk again about the other ones. So syphilis, treponema pallidum. So treponema pallidum are spirochete bacteria, which are spiral-shaped, which are classed as gram-negative, but they're really, really thin, hard-to-see spirals. And to see them, you actually need to do um, dark field microscopy on a really fresh sample. Because the important thing about syphilis is it can't really survive outside the body for very long at all. It's never been cultured. Never? Um, never. You just can't do never it. cultured syphilis. Right. Which I guess leads to some of the later things we'll talk about in terms of um, kind of interpretation of different laboratory tests is a bit of an art and there's a few things to think about because you can't just culture it and test the resistances and fire away. Okay, so that's what it is. How do you get it? How is it transmitted? So syphilis is mainly transmitted by um, sexually, um, and that's usually by contact, direct contact with a lesion. So that's um, it's estimated that if you contact a syphilis chancre, 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 I'm going to say chancre with my horrible accent, um, there's a 30% chance that you'll contract syphilis from that. Um, the other main method of transmission is um, placental um, during pregnancy. Um, and uh, it's very rare for um, other causes. So because we talked about how it basically doesn't survive outside the body, it's an obligate internal parasite. So even in a blood bank, it only lives for up to two days. Cool. Okay, so it's sexually transmitted. And if you touch a, sh- a chancre, however you say it, if you touch that, then you've got a one in three chance of getting it. So if you see any weird lesions on penises on the wards, mm, wear gloves. Stay away. Hopefully yeah. this isn't the first time you've considered that. <laughs> um, but also other rashes. So the rash of, as we'll talk about later, the rash of secondary syphilis and other syphilis-related lesions can also be infectious. Um, there's actually um, rising incidents in a lot of places in the world um, at the moment. But the heart, in 2012, there were 18 million... Um, case uh, estimated cases of syphilis in people 15 to 49 and 5.6 million new cases the highest prevalence is in Africa followed by Southeast Asia and Western Pacific um, the overall rate of reported congenital syphilis is also increasing with 12.4 cases per 100,000 live births reported 2015 I think that, that's so interesting isn't it mm. why is it becoming more common does anyone know well I think it's interesting um I think it's I think it's partly probably I mean this is an uninformed opinion but it might be related to HIV because um, syphilis and HIV have really similar transmission 
Mm. And um, they've actually been shown to enhance transmission of the other um, disease as well. Yeah, so Um, if you've got HIV, you're more likely to get syphilis and vice versa. Yeah. Cool. So I guess that's sort of the definition and transmission a bit about their epidemiology. Really what we want to know is the juicy history facts. Mm, The history facts. So um, the current dominant theory is that syphilis came from the New World. So the conquistadores brought it back from um, Hispaniola when they came back. And they, but, and the reason that we think that is because they started describing it kind of throughout the late 15th and early 16th century in Europe. And when they started describing it, it was originally called the French disease in Italy. And um, in France, it was called... The Italian disease. And in the Netherlands, it was called... The Spanish disease, and the Russians called it the Polish disease, and the Turks just called it the Christian disease. So basically it was kind of an exercise in nationalism and stereotyping. And then in 1530, a lovely physician and poet, Girolamo Fracastoro, um, wrote a big long Latin epic um, about syphilis, where he gave it the name Syphilis, named after an invented Greek mythical character who angered the god Apollo, and the disease was a punishment for that. And none of that will be very useful ever in your career, but <laughs> you can tell your I think kids it's so it's a bedtime story. <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. I promise we'll talk a little bit about semi-useful stuff as well. So just to summarize the semi-useful stuff so far, the bug is Treponema pallidum. It's a bacteria, not a virus, and it can't be cultured. It's spread either by direct contact or transplacental, as in congenital. So the really confusing thing about syphilis is it's called one of the great imitators. So it's a disease with a big variety of different clinical syndromes and presentations. So um, there's, firstly, you think about it in terms of the three basic clinical syndromes. So you think about primary syphilis, secondary syphilis, and tertiary syphilis, which which we'll talk a bit more about later. Um, The other ways to think about it are early versus late syphilis which is basically under one year or more than one year after the initial infection. Right, so that's a chronological classification. It's not about how developed the disease is. Yep. And latent, which means asymptomatic, versus symptomatic syphilis. So you can have a syphilis which you can pick up by laboratory tests, but is asymptomatic, or you can have a symptomatic syphilis, obviously. Um, And the other important thing to think about is neurosyphilis. So neurosyphilis is clinical or serological evidence of neurological involvement. So it can occur at any stage. You can get neurosyphilis within the first year. You can get it around the time you get your secondary syphilis. Um, It can be early or late. It can actually fall under tertiary, but we'll talk more about it later. Right, so just a surprise thing at some point in all of this that has nothing to do with that classification. So primary syphilis, what's primary syphilis, Beck? Do you know? So, broadly, I understand that it's the first one, so it's where you start. Um, it usually happens pretty early on. I'm not sure exactly how long after the first contact it is. A couple of couple of months? Yeah, so the average is 21 days, but it's 3 to 90 days after the infectious contact. So, it usually presents with single or multiple red or reddy brown painless chancras usually on the genitals, but basically wherever the bacterium starts corkscrewing into the person. So if they were having um, anal sex or oral sex, then you can get a chancre in the mouth or 
on the anus or obviously in the vagina or such a vivid picture of these mm. spiral bacteria corkscrewing in so yeah. so if someone has an experience for some reason where they have contact with it with their you know with their elbow that's where they're going to get the shanker mm. yeah so I wouldn't recommend elbow coitus <laughs> so basically it heals within four to eight weeks without treatment and um the re the recall of people who are later diagnosed with syphilis or whether they had the ulcer or not i can't remember the exact number but it's it's quite low it's well less than 50 percent. as in they don't remember that they ever, ever had, had an, an, ulcer. an ulcer because okay. it's it's painless often mm. a solitary lesion it, it goes away in a few weeks how big are they do you know um you can have of different sizes but most of the ones that i've seen on google images would be a couple of centimeters maybe right okay yeah so that's a good source there. All right. And then the, the other thing that primary syphilis comes with is lymphadenopathy. And usually it's quite local. So around where the ulcer is. And I think that this, this is an interesting one that if it's a, um, if the syphilis ulcer is deep in the body, so if it's in the vagina or the rectum, then the lymphadenopathy is not something that you can palpate or appreciate on, a, on an examination. You'd need to actually do an ultrasound and a pelvic ultrasound at that to get to it. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think the important thing here is you're not just looking for these ulcers, which you might or might not find. Um, In early syphilis, you're really thinking about risks. So um, you want to ask patients about unprotected sex, oral sex, anal sex, um, any other STIs, high-risk partners, e.g. men who have sex with men, um, drug users, if they go to poorly regulated brothels. Um, And remember, if someone's had syphilis in the past, they can always get reinfected. Mm, okay so what are the differentials for a genital lesion what are the other things you're thinking of when you see something like this on a penis so some other things to have in your mind are genital herpes um, haemophilus ducreyi and tryptanomyces obviously genital herpes in a first world context would be a lot more common mm, okay so remember primary the take-home point there is a shanker and a local lymphadenopathy now we're going to talk about secondary and um, so in secondary syphilis, what are the what are the symptoms? What do you get? So it um, usually presents about three weeks to three months after the um, initial infection, and you get kind of a generalized syndrome with malaise, generalized lymphadenopathy, low grade fever, sore throat, headache, muscle aches, you get hepatitis. But the real classical symptom slash sign of secondary syphilis is the rash. So you get a widespread rash typically on the trunk and particularly affecting the palms and soles of the feet, but um, can be anywhere. It's non-itchy, non-exudative, and it can resolve spontaneously or sometimes it can be persistent. Okay, so if we're going to remember anything, palms and soles, palms mm. and soles, yeah. syphilis, Thinking secondary syphilis. syphilis. Yeah. Um, the rash is actually highly infectious. Um, also, you can get other skin lesions like condylomalata, which are like syphilitic warts. You can get them in your intertriginous areas. And these lesions coalesce to form flat wart-like lesions, especially around the genitalia and anus. Lovely. You can also get mucus patches in the mouth. Mm, Okay, and also in the mouth you can get tonsillitis, just on one side, and pharyngitis, and and alopecia, not in the mouth. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So... So the key thing again is that secondary syphilis, you're getting general kind of symptoms 
non-specific but the really specific one for your mcq questions is rash the palms and the soles of the feet yeah so what's tertiary syphilis babe so this can happen way down the track like one to 30 years after the initial contact and generally the signs and symptoms fit into either cardiovascular or gummers i don't know if that's pronounced gummers and so cardiovascular uh, we're thinking about things like aortitis, which usually is around the aortic root and can cause aortic dilation or aortic regurg. And then gummers, where where are they? What are they? So gummers. Yeah, so gummers are kind of heaped up granulomatous lesions. So it's basically the body not being able to defeat the syphilis. So kind of having some kind of response and building up these lesions around it. And um, on the skin, they look like kind of like ulcers. They're kind of heaped up granulomatous lesions with a round, irregular, or serpiginous shape. But in organs, viscerally, they present as mass lesions. So they can actually cause local symptoms. Like you can get gummers in your liver or in your brain and they can lead to seizures and things like that. Mm, okay. So the other form of tertiary syphilis, and we'll talk more about this with neurosyphilis, but there's two neurosyphilis clinical syndromes called Tabers dorsalis, and this next one I think is my favourite name for any medical condition I've heard. General paresis of the insane. Yeah, and we'll talk about these a bit later. I guess the the point to bring away from here is syphilis can present in lots and lots of ways. Um, It's a systemic infection and can be really atypical. Okay, so let's just do a quick overview. So primary syphilis. Chancre and local lymphadenopathy. Secondary syphilis, pausing for you listeners to have a think. Systemic illness often includes a widespread rash, particularly palms and soles of the feet, fever, malaise, pharyngitis, hepatitis, mucus patches, condylomalata, and alopecia. Mm, okay, so PCR. just general, general stuff and rash to palms and soles. And then tertiary. You're thinking late stage complications, so cardiovascular system, gametous disease, or neurodegenerative. Okay, so now moving on to congenital syphilis. I don't think there's really a lot that we need to know about this. So give me the, the Spark Notes version. How do you get it? So it's actually usually transplacental. It's only occasionally spread by direct contact with lesions during birth. Um, uh, I guess the things to think about are basically women with untreated syphilis, about 40% chance of transmitting it in the child having congenital syphilis higher chance if it's actually primary or secondary syphilis than if the mother has late syphilis. Mm, okay. Um, it's got a wide range of presentations like syphilis in older people, but basically... Um, Google images will help you out here. It's, it's really bad. Yeah, it's really bad. There's like an acute presentation of syphilis which kids can get in the first few weeks, or there's also kind of long-term presentations where they present a couple of years old with kind of general neurological symptoms like hearing loss or... So interstitial keratitis of their eyes, ocular atrophy, gummers, intellectual disability, um, bone abnormalities. So, you know, it's probably going to be pretty obvious there's something wrong. Mm, Okay. So that's congenital syphilis. Now, the exciting bit. Let's talk about neurosyphilis. So, Beck, when does neurosyphilis come? So we've said it a few times um, that it can just come at any time. So it doesn't necessarily follow any particular pattern in coming during primary or secondary syphilis. Yeah, exactly. So I think the thing to take away from neurosyphilis is there's a lot of different subtypes of it and different clinical presentations. 
but just basically remember that it can cause almost any kind of neurology. Um, some of the common neurosyphilis clinical syndromes would be a meningitis, a cranial nerve palsy, sensory changes, ocular syphilis, where you get an anterior uveitis or panuveitis, a meningovascular neurosyphilis, where they present with a stroke-like syndrome, a meningeal syphilis, where you get an acute meningitis and hydrocephalus. Um, the other kind of exam question, or maybe it was a lot more prevalent in the 1920s when they were writing all those old school medical exam books. That we then sat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff that let stayed in there. Um, Argyle Robertson pupils. So you might have heard of them. Um, it's basically a complication of syphilis where bilaterally your pupils constrict and, um, or accommodate when you focus on near or far objects, but they don't react when exposed to light. So the joke is about you know the prostitute and they accommodate the client, but they don't react because uh, they have syphilis. I don't think I... Yeah. That's kind of the... Yeah. I don't uh, think I ever understood that. All right. So neurosyphilis can cause a whole different bunch of things and it can come at any time. What about late neurosyphilis? So there's a couple of forms of neurosyphilis which kind of come under tertiary syphilis. So the first one is tabes dorsalis. So tabes dorsalis is a slowly progressing neurodegenerative disease which involves the posterior columns and posterior roots of the spinal cord. So it presents with loss of pain sensation, loss of peripheral reflexes, impairment of um, vibration and position, and a progressive ataxia, bladder incontinence. It gets severe painful crises. Um, it's divided into um, pre-ataxia, the ataxia stage, and the final paralysis stage. So it's a progressive, yeah, horrible condition. Horrible. But luckily, you probably won't see it much anymore. Mm, okay. Tell me about that fabulous general paresis of the insane, which I feel like is definitely not PC enough to still be called that. Does it have any other names? It's also called dementia paralytica, which oh, is almost go. as good a name, but not quite. I'm going to keep calling it general paresis of the insane. So... This is a, another progressive condition which occurs 20 to 30 years after exposure. Um, patients get a chronic meningoencephalitis, which leads to cerebral atrophy and a progressive dementia. So think of this if you're investigating someone with dementia. So they can get memory loss, mania, apathy, obviously the Argyle Robertson pupils, seizures. Um, it's usually progressive and after diagnosis, almost all patients will progress to dementia within five years with periodic convulsions and eventual vegetative deterioration. As in, in de deterioration into a vegetable. Yeah, yeah. Apparently possible. Um, That's what Nietzsche had. Yeah, Nietzsche. So apparently his philosophy didn't drive him mad. The philosopher who came up with the ideas that drove some of the Nazi things. Um, he actually ended his life in a mental asylum with tertiary syphilis. So there you go. Don't get syphilis. <laughs> or don't get born before the treatment existed. Yeah. So let's uh, let's just quickly go through some cases. What would be a classic case of somebody with primary syphilis? So a salty seaman back from service in World War Two. He has many half-forgotten memories of ladies of the night in the past, and or recent past, and he presents you with a painless chancre in his genitals. He's limping like a pirate because he's got unilateral inguinal lymphadenopathy. 
And it is 
but you usually do an array of a few different ones. Um, if you're talking about treponemal tests and non-treponemal tests, the important thing to remember is that these treponemal tests are more specific, but they usually stay positive. So particularly in patients who've had syphilis in the past and you've treated them, it's really important to also do the non-treponemal tests, the RPR, the VDRL, because the treponemal tests usually just stay positive. Mm. So that, can you do any other tests for syphilis, Beck, or is it just that serology? It sounds like there's some other emerging tests that haven't really been adopted widely, but there's some rapid testing that are just finger pricks. There's PCR sequencing. But really, I think for the purposes of this podcast, we'll just stick to the treponemal and non-treponemal. So, so I'm a little bit unclear. Can we just go through some hypotheticals? Um, you said that you use both. So in one person who's presenting to you, you're worried about syphilis, you do both a treponemal and a non-treponemal test at the same time. So obviously, if they're both positive, that's syphilis? Is that yeah, pretty much how yeah. it works? Yeah, so for example, in Australia, the first thing that we would test is we would test a non-treponemal test like RPR and also a treponemal test like um, EIA. Um, that would be your first kind of presents to your hospital kind of blood test. Yeah. And what if one of them is positive and one of them is negative? Like, let's say the non-treponemal one is negative and the treponemal one is positive. Well, I guess an important case for that would be um, treated syphilis. Because remember, the treponemal test more often stays positive And the non-treponemal test, because it's not just yes or no, it gives you a number. It can kind of indicate action. So it could suggest that you've had syphilis in the past and you've treated it. Mm, Okay. And so what if the non-treponemal one is positive and the treponemal is negative? Yeah, so um, it could be that it's a false positive if the treponemal treponemal, um, serological test is negative, or it could just be that it's early. And the, for example, the RPR has already risen but um, we don't have the other antibodies yet. Okay. So what about lumbar puncture? When would you do that? So it's really important to think about lumbar puncture in anyone with syphilis who has any neurological symptoms. Um, Also, anyone with HIV who presents with a high RPR. Remembering that that was one of the non-treponemal tests that um, comes out with a number, so it's quantitative, not just qualitative. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and the other important thing when you're interpreting it, so basically you just do all the same tests. So you get the CSF, you do the RPR, you do um, some of those treponemal tests, you do the EIA, um, the fluorescent um, treponemal antibody absorption test. Um, And the cell count, microscopy. Yeah, and the cell count, because um, even if all those other tests are negative and you see a lymphocytic, pleocytosis which just means lymphocytes over 5 in the CSF or if you see elevated protein over 0.45 that can also indicate neurosyphilis Mm, okay so we've talked a bit about investigations now what about the treatment yeah so um, we've got really good treatment for syphilis basically penicillin works really well against syphilis there's never been any um, demonstration of resistance to penicillin So in all cases of syphilis, your first treatment choice, think penicillin. Okay. And you would just treat presumptively most of the time? Do you sort of take the bloods and then treat? Yeah, well, if it's a really early exposure to someone with known syphilis, it may be that those serological tests we were talking about won't be positive yet because they're antibody tests and the body has to make the antibodies. So you can always take the bloods and just treat presumptively. 
particularly in a patient with a very high risk with a known contact or with HIV, or if you see a chancre? So the easy thing about syphilis is because you're treating everyone with penicillin, you um, you don't need to remember a whole lot of different things. So benazine or benzathine, sorry, penicillin is an IM preparation, which amazingly lasts for three weeks. So you give one shot, lasts for three weeks, which is important because the thinking is that you need to be covering syphilis for a week or two in order to treat it. So one shot of penicillin in early syphilis, so that's primary or secondary or even early latent, will do the trick, done. Late syphilis is not just the one shot, you need to give three shots of the IM benzathine penicillin and they're, is it a week apart? Yeah, one week apart. One week apart, and this is if there's no neurosyphilis. What if there's neurosyphilis? Can we just give benzathine penicillin IM again? No, you actually can't because um, uh, the CSF and kind of oculocytes can sequester the bacteria. So you need to have a continuous high concentration of the penicillin. So they actually give benzyl, benzyl penicillin G, so IV benzyl penicillin, and you give it as a continuous infusion. So at our hospital, they send patients home on a, um, what do you call it? A pump. A pump. pump or something. Yeah. And they just visit every day and get the new penicillin put in. And up to date, actually, also recommended giving an extra IM benzathine penicillin just at the end, just for good measure. Hmm, there you go. And then there's also this interesting thing that I had never heard of, the jarish herxheimer reaction, which apparently is something that happens in about a third of patients. So it's important to know what it is and counsel patients about it. And it is. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. That's really important because... It occurs in about a third of patients. It can also occur with other, in other spirochete diseases, but it's classical for syphilis. And just after you start treating it with the antibiotics, all the bacteria start to die off and they get an acute febrile reaction with headaches, myalgia, um, and they can get hypotension. But it usually resolves within a, f- um, a few hours. So make sure you counsel the patients because you want to make sure they keep taking the treatment. Mm. And you don't do anything fancy. You just give antipyretics and treat the blood pressure and monitor them. Yeah. All right, so you've given them the treatment. How do you know if it worked? So we suggest monitoring the treatment. So six months or a year and a year later, doing another RPR, so a non-treponemal test, just to see if it's falling. And what you're looking for is a four-fold decline. So, for example, one to 16 to one to four. Right, okay, good. Um, we also recommend just in general monitoring of patients, doing a yearly test or post-exposure test in HIV patients. And remember, remember, once you get syphilis, even if you treat it, you can get it again. You mm. can't get resistance to syphilis. I love how you said that and then the fireworks started. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if listeners can hear the fireworks. <laughs> um, just a quick shout out to the uh, Tuskegee experiments that have given us all of our knowledge. These are some grossly unethical experiments that happened in the when, when were they the early 20th century early 20th century there you go um you know more about them than me yeah so <laughs> basically um they just observed syphilis in all these african-american patients and during the study it became known that penicillin was a highly effective treatment for syphilis but they didn't terminate the study and they just kept looking at this case series of patients and um it's really disgusting behavior but we learn a lot from it yeah and so, so just in summary, so the key concepts to take home from this, syphilis is really hard to culture. You 
can uh, have presentations in an incredible variety of ways, but it's very easy to cure. So have a low threshold for investigation and treatment. Yeah, so primary syphilis, which we've already repeated many times, but basically think your chunker and your exposure and try and say that better than me. Secondary, think of the rash, palms and soles and generalized malaise. Tertiary, think it's either cardiovascular, gummatus, or some of those late neurosyphilis things. And in neurosyphilis, just think anything neurological. The late neurosyphilis things are general paresis of the insane and tabes dorsalis. Yeah, so just remember, keep syphilis on your mind. We'll leave you with that. <laughs> if you like the podcast, please like us on Facebook and write a review on iTunes. And don't forget that we've got a revision quiz up on the website medconversations.com. Thanks, bye. Cool, thanks.